There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm Kaveh. Are you ready? Were you ready for that, Mark? <laughs> wow. Mark is a I little mean, stunned. I'm quite literally speechless. Yes, that was quite the intro. Hi. You do know my intros are obnoxious. I'm sorry. Um, but it sets the tone, which I think is important. Dr. Mark Lewis, thank you so much for joining me today as my guest co-host. Oh, my gosh. Like I'm stepping into some big shoes here. When you interviewed me a couple months back, it was the quite literally incomparable Ryan Marino in the... Yeah position I'm, I'm feeling now. So yeah, this is, uh, this is daunting, but I'm really, really excited to talk to you and to our, and to our guests. Yeah. See one, do one, teach one, man. Now you're, right. That's right. you're in the game. You sign off in my procedure manual. Is that- <laughs> That's right. Um, okay. So what are we, I should probably mention what we are. I've been told I have to do that. Talk about like who we are at the top of the show. So we're like a medical type podcast. We talk about medical things, but uh, not always. Sometimes we don't. Um, before we get into some topics and get to our guests, there is one thing I am very excited to tell people about. This is actually a, a group that I am very proud to be affiliated with, and I want everyone to check them out. They're called Roadies and Rescues. So, Mark, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, but but there are certain um, animal rescue groups who their whole job is to try and move dogs and cats and other animals out of shelters that have really high euthanasia rates. Sure. And they try to do it from really long distances. Like there's some groups in Portland, there's some groups in Seattle, Washington, and uh, the major roadblock is the transportation. Sure. So I've talked about this gentleman, Paul Thomas, before. He is, in my estimation, the best sound engineer in all the clubs in San Francisco. And he's just a gem of a guy. And I love the guy. And he started this group. So it's a bunch of music professionals, roadies, sound engineers, techs, these guys who have had a little bit more time on their hands because shows haven't been going on. So they started this group where basically they drive these animals all over the state, all over the country to get to these rescue groups. It's called Roadies and Rescues. Check them out on Instagram under the name Roadies and Rescues. If you're interested in contributing, I'm sure they could use it. Um, You know, it's just a bunch of basically sound engineers and roadies at this point, um, spending all their money on gas. So, so help out if you can, they're a great group. Anyways, Mark, how are you doing? Well, it's very kind of you to ask, you know, I'm, I'm part of a dual physician couple and my wife's a pediatrician. And so, um, if we can just jump right into the, you know, obviously the most timely topic is, is COVID. Um, yeah, I've heard it, of it. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's, it's come across your radar. You know, <laughs> I had a really sort of heart-wrenching, you know, moment the other night where, um, so it was our kids' first day of school on Monday, and they wanted to stay up uh, until mom got home. And so I was like, okay. And, you know, she normally comes home at a certain time, and it was getting later and later and later. And frankly, we all kind of fell asleep waiting for her. And then when we woke up, it was because she was home super late. And she'd seen 
you know, dozens of, of um, patients, many, many, many of whom were um, COVID positive. And just to see kind of the emotional reaction of my kids, I, I think the reason it really struck them was, you know, they had just spent their first day at school, in-person school during the pandemic, which obviously is a completely different milieu. And then they saw their mom, you know, come home exhausted in scrubs and have all this contact with COVID. And, and, and they just kind of, it, it was very, very uh, tearful, uh, if I'm honest. And it really, it showed me the sort of the collision of our, our personal and professional lives. And also, I mean, I, I know this is controversial to say, but this is a pandemic that is clearly having an effect on our children, um, both, both directly um, and, and indirectly. And I think it's the latter that, frankly, I find um, almost um, shamefully underestimated when we just talk about uh, mortality or even, frankly, you know, infection rate. Um, I, I think one of the things we're going to talk about tonight is parenting. You know, none of us, frankly, have a manual uh, of how to walk our kids uh, through this. Uh, and I look to my wife that she's the pediatrician. She is the expert in our family and children. And you know, she and I have been trying to figure out how together, you know, how best to do this. But I think when they saw her as, as a doctor who is, you know, dealing with this rather than, than quote, just a parent, um, I think it really, really hit home for them. So th that's obviously been um, what's going on in the Lewis household this week. I mean, obviously there's a lot of reasons to be emotional at a time like this, but but what was it that that made it so tearful? Was it that your kids were sad that your mom wasn't there? Was it that they were worried about her? What was going yeah. on? So that's the thing. It's it's really amazing. And you know, we'll talk tonight also about like how do you raise a child that um you know can see beyond their own identity and beyond their own household, even. And I think it's they finally sort of click for them after all this time that their mom is at risk. And I think yeah. they're, they're, they're 13 and 10. And again, they've got two physicians um, as parents and one huge nerd as a father. So we've talked a lot about the Delta variant and the higher rate of transmission. And I don't know, I, I think they sort of had viewed her as a little bit invulnerable. So to see her come home and, you know, and be tired and, you know, have all the markings on her face from her PPE. Um, and again, it was probably close to midnight when she got home, which is way later than usual. I think it just kind of struck them that, wow, this is, this is real. Yeah, uh, and I think it also um, mattered that they just spent their first day, you know, back in schooling. My daughter being old enough to be vaccinated, my son not, um, and just kind of wondering, you know, am I at risk at, at school now? It's just a, you know, middle school. I, I've told my daughter this. You know, middle school was not the best time of my life, uh, and that's a that's an understatement. I've actually said before I would I would do internship over again before I would go back to middle school, and now she's doing middle school during. COVID, which is a whole other level. Yeah. First of all, if middle school was a highlight of your life, man, your life has tanked. <laughs> it took a turn. It took a turn. Middle school was the worst. I agree. I would happily do surgery rotations over middle school again. Um, I totally understand what you're saying. I mean, I'm really, that, that really hits home. There was this one video that went viral about very early on in the um, pandemic. And I'm sure people will know it right away some guys coming home. He's, I think he's middle Eastern uh, and he comes home and he's in his scrubs and his little kid runs out to see him. He's so happy to see him. And then the guy is like, no, stop, stop. I don't want you to come touch me. I have my scrubs on. And the guy just for a second, it, you know, his guard, like this act of strength, this show of strength that he's trying to portray to the world, to his family, it, it falters and yeah. he starts to choke up. And man, that gets me every time I see it, it hits me every time right in the fields. I, I totally know what you mean. And in fact, you know, I, I'm not ashamed to admit this, you know, the, during the pandemic is the first time I've, I've cried in front of my children about patience. And it's not that I wasn't dealing with, you know, grief before. Um, I, I don't know what it is exactly. I, I think, you know, all of our um, emotional resilience is, is worn down. I think there's some natural attrition there. And there's one night I got home, I, I had lost someone very, very close to me. And I just, I, I just couldn't hold it in anymore. And, and I'd never done that uh, in front of my kids and, and to their enormous credit, you know, it, it's tough, I think, to see a parent, you know, crying and they just came and comforted me. Like I was very, very proud of them and that that was their reaction. They didn't recoil. Um, but it also, it was, it, again, it was a um, unprecedented thing for me to do. You know, one of the things that we try to cultivate as medical professionals is, you know, compartmentalization. Um, I think some of those partitions have eroded uh, during yeah. during the pandemic, and you know, it's, it, you know, I don't work from home, but but someone was pointing out to me, one of my friends who does, is that you know, even that has 
erase the, the traditional divide between professional and personal. Um, he's like, it's not just working from home. He's like, I now live at work yeah. and there's escape from the stressors. And so I think all of us one way or the other are feeling that way. Yeah. And your kids are at that age where like, they're just starting to realize, Oh, my parents, they're mortal humans. They're yeah. not, you know, yeah. they're not, they're not superhuman creatures. Like, and they're at that point where they're seeing how bad things are for the first time, really. And they're seeing how dramatic it is. I, that's, that's hard. And you want to shelter your kids from that, obviously, but I don't know how you can. I mean, maybe that's something we can talk to our guest about. Yeah. Because that is a really important topic and, and something that's on my mind all the time. On a lighter note, I'll say, I know you have uh, a lot of musical background. Um, my son, I think one of the first insights he had into my fallibility was my taste in music. Like one day we were listening, we were, we were listening, we were listening to music in the car. And he's like, dad, Coldplay's terrible. And I was like, oh my God. Your kid like, is dope. Your kid is dope. <laughs> Listen, I stand. I stand their first two albums. I, I know things have gone south since then, but um, it was it was hilarious because you know I there is there is a your point. You're absolutely right. Where you go from venerating your parents and, and almost thinking that they are immortal to realizing, hey, they're just people too. They just happen to be my mom and dad. So that for me was a really funny moment. And since then, I think the scales have fallen from his eyes. That's great. That's fantastic. Well, so you know, you kind of mentioned there's no playbook. Um, a couple weeks back, I jokingly put up this post on Twitter, being like, "Hey, it's too bad there's no up to date for parenting," and or something like that. And up to date, if you guys don't know, it's like this online uh, subscription service that if you're a doctor or you're in the medical community, you can look up uh, every disease pretty much there known to man, and they give you base the basics of it, treatment, all kinds of great information. It's all very summarized well, and it's great. And someone was like, no, there's not, but there is this book. And a couple of people showed me this book. And that is the book by our guest that we're about to bring on. Her name is Melinda Wenner Moyer. She wrote a book called How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes. It's a really great book. Really excited to have her. So let's just get right to it. Um, before we do, please tell people where they can find you in case I don't get a chance afterwards. Yeah. So I am at Mark Lewis, MD. M-A-R-K-L-E-W-I-S-M-D on Twitter. All right. And thank you to Nadine for help with production. Stay tuned. And we're back. We have a special guest. We have Melinda Wenner-Moyer. She's the author of How to Raise Kids Who Aren't Assholes, Science-Based Strategies for Better Parenting from Tots to Teens. I really, really like this book, I have to tell you. So I am very excited to have you on the show, Mark and I both. Let, let us start with one basic question that I have, and I know you addressed this in the book, but I think we need to discuss it. Is it really better if the kid isn't an asshole for the kid's sake? I mean, we do seem to have some good evidence that assholes do well in life. <laughs> Trump. But, you know, people can do well being sociopaths. They can run big businesses and they can. There's a lot of unpleasant people in powerful positions. What's the argument against it? Yes, there are certainly a lot of assholes in power, which is actually one of the reasons I wrote the book, because I was seeing that and sort of getting frustrated by, you know, what were my kids learning from this message? Um, but actually, this, the science on success and its relationship to kindness and generosity is really interesting because studies actually suggest that the kindest and most compassionate and generous people are often actually the most successful. Adam Grant wrote a whole book with this premise, give and take. Um, and it's, you know, I think there is this idea that, okay, if you raise a kid to be kind and generous, they're going to be walked all over. They're going to be taken advantage of. They're just not going to be successful. Cause we do have this idea of like success means you're an arrogant jerk in some way, or you just type a and very, you know, much a go-getter, but um, but the, but the research really does contradict that. And there was, there's one study, for instance, that um, I cite in the book that followed boys from kindergarten until age 25. And they, they tracked the boys behaviors in kindergarten and, and how kind they were and how generous um, to their classmates. And they found that the boys who were the most kind 
actually made the most money at age 25. And I think they were also less likely than other boys to be, to have spent time in prison. So, you know, there is, there is data that says that, that really says being kind pays off in the end and it makes you happier too. There's also research saying that the kinder you are, like the happier you are in general. So I feel like there are not a lot of drawbacks to it. Uh-huh. I, I really love the fact that you, you emphasize that, that being kind doesn't necessarily mean being a pushover or to your own point, say you're for professional failure as a, as a parent reading that, that made me very happy. Um, and, you know, Kavi and I were, were speaking to a predominantly, you know, medical audience. And, and one of the things I, I found so compelling about your book is the overlap between science and parenting. And, you know, Kavi and I were talking, you know, one of the things people say, which I'm sure you've heard ad nauseum is there's no manual for parenting. And yet um, you've done this beautiful job of collating um, all this really scientific evidence. And so we were kind of wondering about your view on evidence-based parenting. How hard is it to, first of all, conduct a trial and then apply that um, to you know, each and every child that's being raised? Right. Well, there, there is a lot of research, but I will say there's not a lot of clinical trials. There are some. Um, I was actually very surprised to find clinical trials um, in the sibling uh, sibling arena, like what is the best way to help siblings get along. Um, but, you know, I will say a lot of the research is, is, you know, cross-sectional or there's some longitudinal, but it's really like observational studies. And so there's a limit to the conclusions we can make from it, um, for sure. Um, I wish there was more and better research, but I imagine this research isn't as well-funded as some other, (laughs) some other research. Um, uh, but yeah, but I, I was still surprised by just how much there was because when I went into this, you know, I, I wanted to know like, what does science say about raising good humans? And I had no idea what I was going to find. And I thought it might be that there's just really not much research out there for me to pull from. And I was very pleasantly surprised that there's so much, and, and, and there are a lot of interventional studies that look at, you know, giving parent trainings and, um, and, you know, making changes to, to how parents parent and seeing how that affects kids over time too. And I found it, pretty compelling, even though it's not, you know, perfectly controlled and, and like, and not a clinical trial, but I did find it pretty compelling. One of the things you, you mentioned in the book is the theory of induction. Okay. Induction is, um, a form of discipline in which you, um, you're always tying a child's actions and choices to their effects on other people. So instead of just saying like, stop doing that, don't do this, pick up your Legos. You're always saying like, pick up your Legos or else I'm going to step on them and hurt myself. Or, you know, please stop screaming so loudly right now because your, your brother's trying to sleep. And if he does, you know, if he doesn't sleep, he's going to be grumpy. So you're always kind of making that connection between like either what you're requesting of your child um, or, you know, what they're doing and how it affects other people. So it's like, it's really going that extra step of, of explaining the rationale essentially of why you're asking what you're asking, but t- tying it to how it, how it affects people. That totally makes sense. One of the major points, one of the major points of your book is that kids need to be able to understand how their actions affect other people. I think that's something that I find very interesting in an internet age because things are a little different. I'm wondering how that might have changed over time. For example, a, a little girl says to another little girl on the, the playground, you know, your hair looks dumb. She sees the look on that girl's face. She sees how it hurts her. She sees that. But with the internet and with internet bullying and with, you know, being comments being made anonymously, how does that, how, how does that work in today's age? I mean, do we still have that? Can kids still get that? I mean, I definitely think they still do get it because even though they might be on their screens more of the day, um, they're still out in the world. They're still in their families and they're still getting those interactions that way. But it's a really interesting question. I think that they are to some degree that the more that kids are spending time using social media where you're not, you know, actually seeing the other person in real time, and you might be doing things that affect another person when, you know, later in time when they check their phone or whatever, and and you don't see those reactions. I, I do think that that's probably, detrimental in some way to the development of theory of mind and just sort of being able to see how your actions affect other people. Um, and I never really thought about it actually that way. And I, but I, I think that's a really good point, but I think, you know, we can, <laughs> to the degree that we can, we can, we can kind of try to make up for some of that by having those conversations more, um, 
you know, more intentionally at home. Um, I, I feel like this is something where it sounds so obvious to, to do this. I'd like to, to always provide the rationale for asking your kid to do something, but I find that actually in practice, it doesn't happen very much. Like we always are saying like, you know, clear your plate from the table or pick up this, or don't keep the freezer open or whatever these things, we just say what we want. And we don't always, in fact, we rarely provide that extra step of here's why, because otherwise mm-hmm. the food's going to melt and then we're not going to be able to have ice cream for a week mm. and we're going to be sad, you know? So um, I guess I would say to compensate for that, if our kids are spending a lot of time on screens and using social media that where they can't see their, their action, you know, their effects on other people that we can try to sort of fill in the gaps by how we're parenting maybe. Yeah. I really like it. It, it. it struck me almost as like the emotional version of the butterfly effect and thinking about how, you know, your actions ripple out and, and affect others. And I think what you're really trying to do there is cultivate you know, empathy and, and thoughtfulness, which unfortunately, as Kaveh was implying, I think are sometimes in, in short supply, especially right now. And a lot of, frankly, I think the provocative discussion around uh, the pandemic has been the effect of your individual decision on someone else's um, health. So I think that's extremely uh, timely. And again, very instructive to those of us who are trying to raise to your, to use your quote, good humans. What I wanted to ask you about is, you know, we sometimes expect our kids to be naturals at everything. And you talk in your book quite a bit about um, how to instill um, sort of better outcomes or better performance, if you will. And I was wondering if you could touch on motivation and grit. And I'll just tell you in regards to the latter, you know, that's been a little bit of a uh, grit has been a, a triggering word a little bit in the medical community, because just earlier this summer, a study came out in one of our surgical journals. And basically what it said was, you know, residents with higher grit scores had um, lower uh, burnout, um, they had lower rates of attrition, and they had actually lower rates of um, physician suicide. And I think the reason it was sort of um, provocative for, for doctors is there was almost the implication is that, you know, the, the way to avoid this and, and the way to better health is to just be grittier. Um, and so I guess what I'm, I'm getting at is there, is there actually a way to cultivate that, or is that just something that is innate? Mm, yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think the, the, the research that I, that I find really compelling is really like the growth mindset versus fixed mindset research in, in terms of fostering motivation. Um, and I think it's relevant to grit as well, but, uh, maybe I can explain that a little bit and, and sort of why it makes a difference and, and why I think it's important. Um, so this is um, Carol Dweck's work. She's a psychologist at Stanford. Um, and her, so I'll start out by saying a lot of parents, I think, and, and this is very well-intentioned. Um, and also we were probably raised with these kinds of, um, this kind of praise. A lot of parents use what's called like fixed mindset praise with their kids, where they'll say like, you're really smart. Or, you know, if they get a good grade on a math test, you're really good at math, you know, and where we kind of put them into these boxes of you're this or you're that. And when we do that, kids kind of start to think of these traits as being fixed. That's why it's called fixed mindset. Um, You either have it or you don't, you're either smart or you're dumb. And then when they encounter a challenge or, or a failure, like they don't do well on a math test, then they think, well, gosh, maybe mom and dad were wrong. Maybe I'm not good at math. Maybe I'm not smart. And if I'm not smart and I'm in this fixed mindset, then there's nothing I can do about it. And in a way too, like challenges in this situation, um, become like risks to your reputation, because if you encounter something hard and you fail at it, then, then suddenly, you know, it's a sign that you're not good at it. You're, you're inept, you know, you just, and there's nothing you can do about it. And so kids with a sort of fixed mindset are much less likely to embrace challenge. They don't want to do hard work because they're scared that they will fail. And this will be a sign that they're not actually smart or skilled. On the flip side is growth mindset, which um, I now use (laughs) since I've read this research with my kids. And I'm seeing a really big difference because I have my son, especially he's 10. He really struggled with like not wanting to do things that were hard. If he wasn't already good at them, he didn't want to have anything to do with them. So we've started using growth mindset language, which is really praising for effort and tying effort to outcome. So if he got a good grade on a math test, I would say, that's fantastic. It must be because you worked so hard at the problems or because you studied so hard. 
And in this growth mindset world, kids come to think of challenges as, and especially if you frame them this way, like an opportunity to grow your brain. You know, when you work on hard problems, you get better at them, you get smarter, you know, you're building your brain. And so then they see failures and challenges very differently. Um, and they don't shy away from them as much. It's, it's instead an opportunity for getting better. And so I feel like this is very strongly tied to this idea of grit because grit is really like perseverance in on a, on a particular project, like in the face of difficulty, um, and growth mindset, I think puts kids in this space where, you know, challenges just aren't scary. They're actually, you know, a sign that you're learning. Um, and again, yeah, with my own, with my own kids and especially my son, I have seen him embrace failure now in a way that he never did before. Like he, for instance, he was on a travel soccer team before the pandemic and they were really terrible <laughs> and they lost almost every game. And at first he was like, I hate it. I'm, I hate that we're losing. This is terrible. I don't want to play by the end of the season. And I kept saying like, well, you know, every time that you lose, it's because you're playing a really good team and you can learn from them. And you're probably, you know, every time you lose, it's an opportunity for learning from that team. That's better than you. And by the end of the season, he actually one morning said to me, you know, I actually think I like losing soccer games more than winning because I really oh. do learn more in those experiences. And I was like, I'm in my head on exploded because I couldn't believe that was coming out of his mouth. That's a mature response. Absolutely. Wow. God. Yeah. It was really cool. That's like, that's the thing about your book that I really like too, is that you, you're very good about taking the pressure off the parents. You're, you're very clear about being like, look, if your kid isn't perfect, that's normal. Everything's okay. Don't feel bad about what you're doing. Cause we all do expect our kids to be innately good at everything. You expect them to be that perfect little kid, you know, from, Forrest Gump, like who comes in and he's like polite to everyone and knowledgeable. And, you know, and that's just not how kids are. They're developing and that's how it's supposed to be in, in that regards, in terms of trying to reward uh, kids, you talk about rewarding a lot. And this seems like a complicated issue because I'm a, like by nature, my, my family, I'm the good cop. I want to be a very good cop. I want to reward. I want to give them all kinds of stuff, but I know there's been a lot of discussion about the dangers of, of rewarding you you seem to have a pretty nuanced approach to this. Can you explain your thoughts, your approach to reward? Yes, sure. It is nuanced and complex. And I, I think a lot of people come down really like hard on one side or the other with, with rewards. And I feel like I'm a little bit more somewhere in the middle. Um, I mean, I've used, as I explained in the book, I, I used rewards with my kids. I used them for years and, you know, I did see that my son's behavior improved in the short term with rewards. Like it really, they really do work. And in, in some ways too, they can, they can create good habits, which then, you know, even in the absence of rewards, kids might still have. So I, I think that there is a place for rewards. I also think, especially when you're trying to motivate your child to do something they really don't want to do, um, that rewards can be kind of a way of getting them over that initial hump and getting them, you know, to see like, it's not that bad or, you know, um, you can do this. And so rewards can be useful, but when I dug really deeply into the research, um, and this is a lot of it's Edward DC's work. Um, what I found was some pretty compelling research suggesting that if you use rewards to reward kids or adults for things that they might already enjoy to some extent, or they can get some kind of satisfaction out of. So that could be something like that. They just, you know, a hobby like drawing. It could also be even like cleaning their room because on some level, after you've cleaned your room, you get some kind of satisfaction from having done it. Like if your room's clean, you get to enjoy it. When you reward kids for things that they could find um, satisfying on some level, then the research suggests that it rewards will kind of undermine your intrinsic motivation for doing that thing because they feel controlling. And when kids feel controlled and kind of manipulated to do something, and this is true of adults too, actually, um, then that kind of interrupts the enjoyment they get out of it. And suddenly it's like confusing. It's like, well, why am I doing this? Am I, I, I don't know if I want to do this because I feel controlled and I, and I kind of want to rebel. I mean, it's this natural sort of pushback against feeling controlled. Mm -hmm. And the research is pretty compelling. I mean, they've done interventional studies with, with kids where they, you know, have, they, they pick out kids who just generally like to draw and then they split them up into groups and they give half of them a reward for drawing and the other half, they just, you know, let, let be. And then later on, they present drawing materials to all the kids and the kids who've been rewarded for drawing then are less interested in drawing afterwards. Um, 
So, yeah, I think, you know, I don't think it's like giving rewards is going to just completely extinguish their motivation for something. And like, you're, you're doomed. Um, I think it's a slow process. And I think if you use rewards and you stop using them, which we did, you know, we found that like the things kind of go back to normal and everything kind of, you know, goes normalizes again. So I, I, again, and I appreciate what you're saying. Like, I don't want to shame parents for doing things that maybe the research suggests aren't the most constructive because we all are doing things sometimes that aren't the most constructive. There's no way to be a perfect parent. And if you do things that are not like the most constructive way, you're not ruining your kids. Like it is not something where you've, you know, it's hopeless at this point. You can always kind of re-steer things in the, in the right direction and it's, it's fine. So yeah. Um, I, I don't use rewards as much as I used to, I will say. <laughs> it sounds like you're allowing them to find the joy in the thing itself, rather than setting them up to expect some sort of secondary gain, which to your point, then in turn, you know, leads them to think, is this some sort of psychological manipulation? So it, I think this actually might be a good point if you can tell our audience um, the distinction between authoritarian and authoritative parenting. I found that really interesting. Yeah. The research on parenting styles is very interesting. There's a lot of it and it's all fairly consistent. Um, so I find it pretty compelling. Um, so this uh, comes from research that's been done over decades now. Um, but researchers essentially tried to understand like, what are the, what are the main groups of parenting style? And by parenting style, I mean like the emotional climate that parents create in the household that involves like how they respond to kids and interact with them. Um, what, what the power dynamic is like, et cetera. And so there's, there's four main types, although I will say, I think three are the most common. Um, there's authoritarian parenting, and this is where there's a really clear hierarchy between the parent and the child. Um, the parent is definitely in charge. Um, there's a lot of, um, controlling behavior by the parent, um, often like a lot of punishment. Um, sometimes there's kind of like psychological control happening where you're kind of like manipulating your child to, and saying you're, you're a bad girl if you do this thing and sort of making them feel bad about themselves for, for their behavior. Um, and it, this is the kind of parent who, you know, when, a, when they ask their child to do something and the child says, well, why do I have to do that? The parent is like, because I said so, you know, no questions. You cannot ask questions. You cannot, you know, negotiate. It's like the parents in charge. Um, and this is, I think this parenting style is more common in the past. Like I think of mad men and the parents in mad men as being really clear, like authoritarian parents, children should be seen, not heard, like sure. end of story. Um, and uh, the outcomes of children, you know, there's lots of us were raised with authoritarian parents and we we're fine, but generally speaking, those kids do not on average do as well. Um, they um, often have um, issues with, um, uh, what's word? Um, I keep, I'm thinking of the wrong word. Um, bullying. Um, yes, that is definitely, yes, that, that, that's close enough. Yes. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, sorry, I can't think of the word right now, but they, You're they also doing don't do great. as well in school. You're... Thank you. But yes, they generally just don't fare as well and they're not as kind. They don't do as well in school. Um, sometimes they have more issues with drugs and alcohol too. Um, on the other side of that spectrum, there's two kinds of parenting. One is, um, neglectful, which is kind of exactly what you think, like the parents really aren't around, they aren't providing much of structure at all. There's, um, and permissive parenting. So I'm, I'm going to get to the middle ground, which is the good one in a second, but permissive parenting is kind of the opposite where like, there's no clear hierarchy. Um, the parent is, you know, the child is kind of in charge in a lot of ways. Like they let their child decide when they go to bed or when, when it's time to leave a play date. I actually know some permissive parents and it's a little frustrating because there just aren't a lot of boundaries. Um, and these kids also don't fare all that well. They have some issues as well because they just, they don't have the boundaries they need. Um, and then in the middle is authoritative parenting. And this is kind of the sweet spot um, in terms of what the research shows. Like the kids of authoritative parents fare the best and they're the happiest as well. And authoritative parents, um, they are, they have boundaries and rules and expectations of their children, but they're also very warm and they treat their kids with a level of respect that you don't see in the authoritarian households where, you know, sometimes they will negotiate with their kids. And if their kids say, why do I have to do this? They'll actually, you know, give them an explanation and say, well, here's why. And, and so they just kind of, they treat them yeah, with a kind of level of respect that you don't see. And there's a little bit, they're, you know, a little bit closer to equal, but there's still a hierarchy. Um, and yeah, these, these kids are, 
by far, like they, they really do the best, um, in kind of all walks of life. And so that's kind of the sweet spot that you want to be aiming for as a parent. You know, to a hammer, it looks like a nail, you know, to me as a physician, it's hard for me not to see a, a parallel here with doctoring, which is that, you know, we've seen the pendulum swing in medicine from paternalism, which sounds to me, you know, very authoritarian to shared decision-making, which is more in the authoritative model where you respect either person and you have some dialogue around the, the choices. So that's really fascinating. Yeah, that is really interesting. That makes sense. And aggression was the word I could not think of. Aggression. aggression. We should have got, that's on us. We should have gotten that for you. That's on, that's it's, our bad. No, it's, it's all good. You do a really great job of providing a bunch of different strategies for parents to use in your book. Um, I, I have an idea of which one this might be. Uh, maybe I'll guess and you can tell me if I'm right, but I'm wondering which of the strategies is the hardest for people to follow, which seems to be the most difficult. Um, my guess actually would be some of your strategies about discussing gender stereo stereotypes, trying to prevent having a sexist child, basically. I would imagine some of those are really hard for people because a lot of that they don't see as inherently um, destructive or inherently problematic. Um, first of all, let me just ask, am, am I right? Which are the strategies that people tend to have the most difficulty with? I don't know that I have that answer. Um, cause I haven't gotten a lot of feedback from readers about like, you know, what they have trouble with. I, I mean, I have gotten some pushback on that particular chapter for sure. Um, and I guess it also depends on what you mean by like how, like they struggle with it, you know, do they disagree with it versus do they find it hard to actually do? And I imagine, you know, talking about talking about sex and pornography is something that's really hard for people to, for parents to do. And also talking about race for white parents. That's something right. that the research shows that even when parents are in studies and they are asked to talk to their kids about race as part of a study that, the, that 90% of parents, this is one particular study that's pretty well cited, 90% um, of parents in one interventional study, they were asked to go talk to their kids about race for two weeks. And then they came back and said, I did not have one single conversation. I'm sorry, I'm pulling <laughs> out of the study. 90% of them. So that one is also another one where like parents are struggling, but not because they maybe disagree with it, but because they just don't feel comfortable with it. it it's a tough, um, that's a tough challenge. Oh, and I definitely want to get to that point but let's <laughs> for a moment let's talk about that your um your strategies for avoiding having a sexist child yeah. it, it could you summarize some of that for us how you recommend dealing with that yeah so um i let me provide a little context too because i think you you might need it in order to understand why the strategies are important but i'll try to be quick <laughs> um i mean we live in a very gendered world where kids are constantly hearing us refer to gender, you know, every time we use a pronoun to describe someone, we are indicating their gender, you know, and, and they see, gosh, we have different bathrooms for different genders. We have different McDonald's toys for Happy Meals for different genders, different clothes, different sports teams. For kids who, one of kids' big jobs is really to like look around at the world and figure out what matters and what's important and what they should pay attention to. We are constantly giving them the message that gender is an important category and it must matter because they are seeing it differentiated everywhere. Um, and, and so because of that, um, and, and so they see that we are accentuating it, they see it's important. And they also see this gender hierarchy in our society. Like they notice there hasn't been a woman president that, you know, men tend to have more, um, prestigious jobs and more wealth and more power. I mean, they see that too. And when you kind of combine those two things, kids will ultimately come to the conclusion that maybe like boys are smarter and better and girls aren't quite as important and, you know, not as powerful. So obviously these are not the things we want them to conclude. Um, so one of the strategies to kind of interrupt that process is to the degree that we can as parents, like kind of de-emphasize gender when it's not relevant. Like don't always be referring to girls as girls. Like if it's a, if it's, you know, you could say kids, it, 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 these are things where it's like, they're still going to be getting the signals from society all the time, but to the, to the degree that we can kind of not emphasize gender all the time and also not differentiate gender all the time. Like if we have a, I have a boy and a girl, it's helpful for me then not to buy like boy toys only for my son and girl toys only for my girl. And to also not like talk about 
for instance, science and math with my son, but not with my daughter. These are things that parents actually do. Mm -hmm. And they have, there are studies that show that like parents are much more likely to talk about math and science with their boys and talk about how pretty their girls are. And these are again, bombarding kids with these messages that, wow, what matters for girls is how they look. And what matters for boys is how, you know, what they do and what they think about and how smart they are. So as parents, to the degree we can kind of like not emphasize these differences and not buy gendered toys and not, you know, really kind of, um, uh, uh, yeah, like push these gender stereotypes on our children, then they will, uh, to some degree, maybe <laughs> we hope not absorb that, you know, girls and boys are so, so different and they should be so different. And also that, you know, girls are less important and less, uh, you know, just less powerful than boys. So that's, that's a, that's one. I, I, like I see, something. I see the importance of that, but I can see why that'd be hard for people. There's probably yeah. people out there who are like, I want my son to have the same experiences I did growing up, you know, playing Cowboys and Indians or whatever things kids play. I don't know. Or like, I want my little girl to be a princess. I want her to have the Malibu beach home Barbie set, whatever I wanted when I didn't, you know, when I was a kid that I feel would be hard for people. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, there's a difference between kind of like pushing these toys on your kids and then just if, if they're interested in them, which they might naturally be, then, you know, getting them for them. Like my, I don't push these things on my daughter, but she does naturally gravitate towards them because everything in the, our culture is saying that she should be into princesses and unicorns. And so when she asks for a princess or a unicorn, you know, that I do give her that in addition to maybe like a softball and a softball mm-hmm. bat yeah, to yeah, try to balance yeah. it. Um, I think the other thing though, if that sounds too hard, which it might be for some parents, another really great thing is to just um, uh, really encourage cross-gender friendships. And I feel like this is something that even, you know, a lot of parents would be okay with, like have play dates, have your daughter play with a boy and have your boy play with a girl. These are really powerful ways also to kind of um, help kids realize, wow, boys and girls aren't that different. Um, and so, and I think that might be a little bit easier for some parents. Um, and also just like talking about sexism, I think is really important because as I say, kids notice the gender hierarchy that exists and we need to explain why it exists. And if we don't, then kids come to the conclusion, as I said, that like girls just aren't as smart or boys, you know, are, are, are better. So we need to explain. And actually research suggests that when we do, for instance, when, when um, researchers explained to girls that um, gender discrimination is in part responsible for gender disparities in science, the girls after the girls, when they were given that lesson and that explanation, they were more, they became more interested in science than they had been before, because perhaps before they had kind of thought, well, girls just maybe aren't as good at science. I'm never going to be able to do it. So why try? But then when they realized, oh no, it's just, it's our society that's telling girls they can't do it. Then they were like, well, damn it. I'm going to be really into science. Then I'm going to do this. Getting them to rebel in the right way. That's what I love. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, talking about sexism, which I think also is a little counterintuitive because I was worried at first, like, do I really want to hit my daughter over the head with the fact that like sexism is exists and it's terrible and she's going to have to deal with it. And I thought, is that going to, you know, hurt her self-esteem in some way, but I I've actually found, yeah, she, it makes her angry and it makes her want to fight it. And, and, you know, and she's like, damn it, I'm just as good as a boy and I'm just as smart. And, and I, and I love that. Um, and so I think, I think those conversations are helpful too. See, I had the foresight to have absolutely no athletic prowess as a child. So there's no precedent there for my <laughs> pressure to follow. But, um, you know, you make such an interesting point about discernment. And I think we really underestimate sometimes, at least I do, just how astute uh, my kids are. Uh, I, I realize just what they're taking in all the time, whether or not they're actually voicing it. Is that, I'm going to shift gears just very slightly here. Is that why the strategy of, of color blindness? doesn't work is that it it is actually failing to acknowledge inequities. And and furthermore, and you you touched on this in the book too, you know, not being racist is not the same thing as being anti-racist and and trying to overturn, uh, you know, these power imbalances. Can you speak to that? Yes. Yeah. In some ways, the, um, the discussion around racism is similar to the discussion on sexism because again there is this um there is this hierarchy that kids see with race so 
they're different in the sense that with gender, we kind of overemphasize it. We talk about it all the time with race, especially with white parents, we just don't talk about it at all. And we think, gosh, if we don't talk about it, yeah, our kids won't see it. They won't pay attention to it. They won't make a big deal out of it. And this on some level does make some sense, but the research really contradicts that that that's not what happens. Um, Kids do see race, they see skin color, they see it from a very young age. And even if you live in a predominantly white community, you know, you're seeing it in the media, you're seeing it on TV and in books. And if you, and and again, the kids are, are discerning, they are seeing that the world is very, that race is very important when it comes to power in our world. Um, And so if we don't explain that racism is responsible for this hierarchy that, that we see, then they will come to the conclusion again, that like white people are just smarter or better. Um, And so we have to talk about it and we have to explain, you know, what racism is. We also need to like normalize conversations around skin color, because the other thing we do when we don't talk about race is because kids can see it matters and they, they see that we don't like to talk about it. And sometimes even when they bring it up, we will kind of say, Shh, don't talk about that. We don't say things like that. You know, if they make a comment about somebody's skin color in the supermarket, we will often shush them and say, don't, that's not nice. Um, we are sending the message that like race is bad. Skin color is bad talking. You know, we can't, don't come to your parents if you have questions about it because they don't want to talk about it. It becomes like this, like almost more titillating thing because clearly it's important, but my parents won't talk about it. And that means it's like extra special important. Um, So we kind of need to just normalize it. Like if our kids ask us questions about race and skin color, just try to be calm and give them, you know, matter of fact answers and, you know, explain why skin colors are very, you can talk about melanin, you know, um, So, yeah, uh, and I I really appreciate your point that, yes, not being racist is different from being anti-racist. Kids have to know racism exists if if we're going to expect them to try to fight it, right? They don't, they're not going to fight an injustice that they don't know exists. So if we want them to be anti-racist and to be taking steps to, you know, actually fight for equality, then they need to know that this is a problem. They need to be able to recognize it when they see it. Yeah, it's a really important part of the book that I think is probably counterintuitive to a lot of us. I think if we were in a situation where we were in a grocery store and our kids said something bad or said something really awful about someone's skin color, for example, our first inclination would be to either run screaming and leave the kid there in the aisle by themselves (laughs) or like, what are you doing? You can't do that. But you're the hard thing to do. The harder thing to do is to stop in that moment, take a breath, and then address it, um, which is, a, I think that must be a real challenge. So um, and your book covers that very well. So uh, let's, let's, we, there's so much I want to talk to you about, but we can't, unfortunately, just, there are some limits to how long I can keep you up this late. So uh, <laughs> let's go to a couple of listener questions, and then we'll let you go. But then you have to promise to come back at some point in the future. Does that sound okay, fair? Deal. That's okay. a deal. Yeah. So here's a question from Jennifer Klein, and this is a really good question. How do you get kids to try new foods without threatening them with the loss of Mm. privileges? Mm -hmm. Oh boy. This, this is, um, an area that I don't get into in my book. I don't talk about food at all, but I do have, um, feelings about, (laughs) but it's, it's, (laughs) (laughs) Um, I do have thoughts on this. Um, and, and my thoughts on it might not be what's typical. Um, so I really appreciate, um, an approach to feeding kids that is rooted in Ellen Satter's division of responsibility model. Um, and this is the idea that you as a parent provide, um, you decide, when, where, and what you serve your kids and your kids decide basically how much they're going to eat. And it's an idea where you really give them the autonomy to decide what they're going to do with food. And it's something that's very, very hard for parents to do because of course we worry about nutrition and we we worry about what they're, you know, what they're going to eat. But when we force our kids to try things or to eat things or to finish their broccoli before they get dessert, we are kind of interrupting their ability to sort of listen to their body and understand what their body is telling them. And we, again, are, are, are controlling them in a way that, that makes it really hard for them to develop a neutral relationship with food. Um, yeah, I wish I was more eloquent on this topic. Um, but what I, what I do, we don't, 
force our kids to try foods. We, every dinner, you know, I, I will serve what I serve. I don't make special things for my kids, but I also make sure that every meal, there's some kind of like safe food that I know that they will be comfortable with. Mm -hmm. And what I've found, because we didn't always do this, we've done this maybe over the past year and a half is that my kids are much more adventurous with food now than they were, because there's no pressure on them to eat the things that I serve, but sometimes they just get interested and they're like, you know what? I will try peppers today and see what they're like, because it's just, it's not charged anymore. And also dinners are so much more pleasant because we don't have this power struggle constantly with our kids about what they're eating and how much they're eating. Like, I just don't pay attention. They can eat what they want. Um, and you know, they don't have to eat anything. They don't want to people think sometimes we're crazy, but, but the research on this, there is research on this really suggests that this helps. It makes meals. It makes food more neutral. It makes everything more enjoyable. And also it helps kids actually become like less picky and have less fewer issues with food. So I don't recommend forcing your kid to try the foods as hard as that is. Mm -hmm. Um, but you know, in that, in the space in which they feel comfortable kind of, and they don't feel pressured, they will often decide to try it. I mean, our yeah. kids, we ordered sushi recently and like my kids really like wanted to eat it because they were like, there wasn't any pressure on them in a way they didn't have to fight it. They didn't have to rebel against it. They were just like, Oh, that looks interesting. I'd like to try a bite. And they had one bite and didn't really like it, but like they tried it because it was just a, a safe space for them. I've never had an experience of forcing a child to eat something where that worked out and they wanted to eat it again. That just never happened. So yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I understand this approach. I will recommend, um, my friend, Virginia Soulsmith, she's a journalist and she has a newsletter called burnt toast on Substack. And this is, this is, what she covers this and like mm -hmm. diet culture. She talks a lot about the division of responsibility approach and why it's helpful and the research behind it. So I highly recommend, cause I did not do a very good job of explaining it there. I highly recommend if you want to learn more to, to follow her Substack. All right. Uh, here's another question from, uh, Kristen Kurtz. Uh, there's a couple, it's a two, two parter. So what are your thoughts on behavior modification implanted in schools? i.e. using apps like Class Dojo and giving out points based on behavior and then taking them back as a consequence. I'm not really familiar with this. Are you guys? Yeah, it's the gamification of, of conduct, really. Yeah, my, my kids have used Class Dojo before. So the teacher does it? So this is something the teacher does, and then she's like, okay, you messed up. I'm taking points away. You don't get your Pokemon or something? Yeah, and, and what's really interesting, and obviously I'll let our guests speak to this, is there's both individual um, pluses and minuses, but also sometimes collective pluses and minuses. And so it, it, it's a fascinating psychological experiment that I'll, I'll let the author speak to you, of course. But yeah, so like my son, for instance, would, would get, you know, a, a, a bonus for doing something well, but then if, you know, the class hadn't participated in total on a task, then they would all get a subtraction. So there's this really interesting, almost mm -hmm. like group pressure that they were all going to have to um, toe the line. Oh, wow. Hmm. Yeah. I'm not a fan of, well, this is essentially a reward system, but it's also a punitive system where kids are kind of getting shamed in public for their behavior. I'm really not a fan of that. I'm not sure that that is really constructive. Um, I mean, in part because it's a reward system and I'm not a super big fan of rewards, but I also think that that sort of shaming, I mean, kids are, kids are coming to school with different skills and different capabilities. And, and, you know, if there's a child who's really struggling in school for whatever reason, I mean, in school puts so many demands on kids to be sitting still for so long, to be quiet, you know, some kids really struggle with that. And then to, for, to, for those kids who are already really struggling to then be shamed over and over again, because they can't follow the rules as well as some of the other kids, it just doesn't feel like that's going to be very good for those children. Um, and then they might, you know, also be developing a reputation then because the kids all think of him as he's the kid who gets us in trouble. He's the kid who takes yeah. away our ice cream party yeah. because he messed up that day, you know, and he really couldn't control himself. I just those seem yeah like... yeah we we all saw Full Metal Jacket that doesn't work out well <laughs> like, that's that's not great I get it okay here's the other part of her question how do you manage your kids expecting gifts when all your relatives won't listen about giving them too much oh yeah right so so the relatives are just giving them so so many things yeah I think it's about teaching appreciation and being grateful and trying to avoid 
too much materialism, I think. Um, that's really hard. I mean, I wonder whether in that situation you can really have conversations with the relatives. If you really just don't want your kid getting 80 more toys every Christmas than they need, like setting a limit and saying you really can only buy our children, you know, two toys or one toy or whatever it is, and really try to create this kind of system. Like, but I think you probably need to sit down with your extended family and like have a kind of conversation about it and really emphasize that it's really important to you. So that could be one thing to try to actually, you know, make, (laughs) have your relatives change rather than how you have to deal with it. Um, I mean, certainly I think like something we do always, like when our kids get presents, they always write a thank you note. Um, I think, you know, if just trying to find ways to have them um, understand what gratitude is. Mm-hmm. And, and a, a lot of times too, one that we do, like when my kid will get a present and he's like, not excited about it, you know, why did, why did aunt Gertrude get me this ugly sweater? <laughs> um, I will sometimes like sit down and talk about, well, let's talk about what aunt Gertrude had to do to get this gift to you. No, you know, she went to a store and she was thinking, about you and what you might like. And she was probably thinking you might be cold this winter and she wanted to make sure you weren't cold. And so she saw this sweater and she really liked it. And she really thought, you know, you might like it, but also that it would keep you warm. And then she had to buy it with her money that she earned. And then she had to wrap it. And that takes time. And that's actually, you know, sometimes hard. She had to buy wrapping paper. And we'll go through the steps of like what this person had to do to get that gift to you so that they realize like, this is actually, you know, this person put a lot of thought and time and money sometimes into this. And, you know, you should be grateful for that. That's a lot of effort. Like when was the last time you did all those things for somebody and think about how, you know, how much that requires. And so sometimes we just like make that, we'd really try to sort of explain the chain of what happened there and how much went into it. So they can really grasp what a kind gesture it was. Yeah. When was the last time you went to Macy's little Timmy? Hmm? (laughs) I'll try and I'll try and remember this approach, uh, because I think if that were ever to happen, I would probably be really, really upset. That would be really somewhere deep in my Iranian core. If my child were to be disrespectful like that to someone who gave him a gift, that would be really hard on. I would be like, that would be the time where I have to take a breath. Be cool. Be cool. And I'll try and remember what you just told me right there, because I think that's really good advice. It's kind of like induction in reverse because you're working backwards Mm -hmm. for all the steps. That, that led to them receiving the gift. I love that. That's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you so much. Melinda Wenner Moyer, please tell everyone where they can find this really great book. Well, it should be at any bookstore that you would like to shop from. Um, certainly on Amazon. There's also an audio book that I narrated. Um, but yes, it's at independent bookstores as well. There's an ebook as well. So, um, and I also have a newsletter where I'm continually answering parent questions and I always answer them with science. Um, so probably my website's the best way to sign up. It's just melindawennermoyer.com. All my social media is on there too, but you can, you can subscribe to my newsletter there as well. And it has purchase links for the book from various places. So... Yeah. Well, thank you. And Mark, thank you so much for coming in, doing such a great job as guest host. Um, Thank you to everyone again who has already left reviews for us at iTunes. If you haven't, please do so. And thank you to our guests. We'll talk again soon. This podcast is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please consult a physician or other qualified health care provider for your specific health care needs or concerns. The opinions expressed on this podcast do not represent the opinions of our employees. Details in the podcast have been changed so that patient identification is not possible.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.